Well, we finished Revelation. Boy, wow. So what's, what's next? What's next? I don't know. We'll, we'll figure out in a, eventually what the next series will be. As I mentioned, for those of you who get the letter, I get to, to choose my own for, for three Sundays. And we're going to be looking for three Sundays at a, a doctrine, a doctrine that is so important that any church which denies it cannot be considered a Christian church. It's a doctrine that all Christians profess to believe, and yet most Christians have little understanding of. And indeed, if we're asked to explain it, probably would speak heresy in trying to explain it. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. So we're going to take, be taking um, three Sundays on this, kind of going in three stages. Today, this morning, we're going to be looking at scripture texts that just present the doctrine. Because after all, it is God's word that matters, and it's actually God's word that just compels us to, to have to grapple with this baffling concept of God. The next Sunday, we're going to look and turn to the theologians of the church in history. How did the church grapple with this, wrap its mind around of understanding of this concept of the Trinity. And then finally, we're going to be looking at uh, really what are all the different practical applications for the Trinity in our lives of how to understand that. So let's pause for a moment. First of all, to look at what a definition of the Trinity is. And we're going to turn to our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And let me just uh, read it to you uh, briefly. I think I have it, by the way. Don't I have it? Do you have an insert in the bulletin that will help you follow along? That's right. The Trinity in the Bible. You see this insert. And I'm just going to read that definition to you. And we're going to be covering, by the way, just a lot of scriptures. But you will not need to take a pencil and keep trying to note what all those scripture verses are. I've got them right here as an insert. Uh Uh-oh, my wife's shaking her head. No, you. Yeah. Okay. You got that? Everyone else has this except my wife? Okay. Okay, good. I'll, I'll give her my notes afterwards. But I'll have all the scripture verses that I'm going to, to read from or on here, except one, and I'll, I'll let you know what that is. So I just thought that will help you as we go through this. I mean, normally we take a passage of scripture and, and do what you call exegeting and just doing this. Here, I'm just going through all of the New Testament and grabbing a lot of verses together. But I'm doing this for the purpose is just to impress upon us, again, that this doctrine comes from scripture. That's the idea that's behind this. But let me read that definition to you from the Westminster Confession. There is but one only living and true God. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, 
the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. We'll talk more about that next week, that, that particular line again. All we need to know right now is that God is three in one. He is three persons in one substance. And next week, we'll, we'll try to understand what that all means. But now we're going to go to the scriptures for our guide. Like I said, it's the scriptures that made the church, the early church, have to grapple with this concept. And we're going to start of all, first of all, with what the New Testament has to say about Jesus. There are intimations of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it's the arrival of Jesus on the scene that pushes this unique concept of God to the forefront. He's the one who started it all. The religious leaders were looking for the Messiah to come. They knew that he was going to be special. He's going to be coming from God. He would be on par with with Abraham, with Moses, with, with David. But they were not expecting what he claimed for himself. And they first sensed that something was amiss in that episode. Do you remember where the, the paralytic is lowered through the ceiling? You know, and, and Jesus, when he sees this happening, instead of just saying, you know, be healed, he pronounces the man's sins to be forgiven. And there were Jewish law teachers there, and the red flags, I mean, just went off. The, the, the alarms, everything, something's wrong here. As they said correctly, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, they said. Why? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay. So the teachers, the, the religious leaders, they caught on pretty quick. Something's wrong with what he is saying. Now, Jesus would speak more words like that. Indeed, he would raise the alarm enough to make these religious leaders want to kill him for his blasphemy. Later on in John chapter 10, 33, they're picking up stones to stone him. And he says, well, what good works is it that you're stoning me for? And they reply, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They're just listening to what he is saying. And in the end, that was the reason that they sent him to the cross. They had asked him point blank, Do you, are you the son of God, the son of the blessed? And he said, yes. And you will see the son of man coming from the clouds and from power. And he is coming. And that's when they said, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So was Jesus guilty of making himself God? Well, let's consider what Jesus had to say. Consider, first of all, the the I am sayings that you read about in the, the Gospel of John. You know, unlike other religious figures of, of other religions, they, you know, all other religious leaders, 
they would never have referred to themselves as anything more than, than messengers. You know, messengers for, for God, as they understood him. And they, they pointed the way to God. But Jesus made audacious claims about himself. Listen, John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, if he eats of me, he will live forever. Or John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the source of life. Or John 8:58. They picked up stones when he said this one. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Why did they pick up stones? Because he just used the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Or John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes, he doesn't say in God, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then John 14, 6, that's the one I didn't put in there, the one we all know, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the light. Jesus isn't the one who came to point the way to God, to the life. He is the life, the truth, the way. He identifies himself with God the Father in John 10, 30. And again, they picked up stones when he said this. I and the Father are one. Okay. Or in John 10:38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then John 14:9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay. Now what the Father is like, you've seen me. You're looking at God. Now, Jesus pointed to the Old Testament also as indicating his divine status. Uh, there's the uh, passage in which uh, he, they, you know, the, the religious leader has been uh, pelting him with all of these questions, trying to trick him. And he could answer every one of them. Well, he finally turned the tables on them in Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And he's quoting here from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Jesus' point here is, look, the Messiah is something more than a man. And Psalm 110 is pointing to that. And then there is what also in the New Testament is said about Jesus. 
There are just a handful of verses in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, it's referring to, to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or John 20, verse 28, when he, Thomas is confronted by the risen Lord. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Colossians 2.9 speaks of Jesus. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or Titus 2.13 speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then let me read a, a long section here from Hebrews. It's in the first chapter. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, this is, this is Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds or his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And what the Hebrew speaker is speaking of, here's what God is saying. God says, angels, your messengers, and so on. But God says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Set at my right hand, again quoting from Psalm 110, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, I've only taken a selection of scriptures. We could take a lot more time just going over the scriptures about Jesus. But I think we can agree we have a strong enough basis here upon which to understand that Christ is something more than just a man. That he is far above the angels. And indeed, as John 1.1 made clear, cannot even be categorized at all as a fellow creature, for he is is God. So that's what we hear about the scriptures have to say about Christ. What does the scriptures have to say about the Holy Spirit? Now, it's a little bit different thing for us to try to grapple with, with the Holy Spirit. I don't think anyone here has difficulty understanding the Spirit as divine, like we would have had with Jesus. With, with Jesus, as the Son, we have to kind of wrap our minds of taking him and, and equating him up there with God. The problem with the Spirit is a little bit different. It's how do you separate him at all? from God, from God the Father. 
Indeed, some people would just claim, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, that the Spirit of God is simply another way of speaking of God. Because God is a spirit after all. Well, let's go to the scriptures and we'll see that it is Jesus again who forces us, who compels us to look here at the Holy Spirit as a, as a distinct person of the Trinity. So let's read what Jesus has to say. First in Matthew twelve thirty-two, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. He's talking about himself. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke twelve twelve. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father, Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. John 16, verses 7 and 8, and then 13 and 14. Jesus talked to his disciples. He soon is going to be leaving them. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears... Okay, this is not a force. This will be whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus is saying, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you can say, I think you all would agree. Again, I'm just only taking a small selection here. But the very manner in which Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit that's the manner in which you speak of a person, not a, not a force, not some abstract concept, not a, not a figure of speech for God. Jesus and God the Father will send him. He will come. He will teach. Now, again, much more could be explored about the Holy Spirit. I could have gotten a whole lot more, too, from the Old Testament. And they present for him not only as a distinct person, but with all the divine attributes of God. But they distinguish him again as a distinct person from the Father, from the Son. Then you have that Holy Spirit. What we're going to do now, we're going to turn to passages that present all three persons of the Trinity together. You know, oftentimes it it might be stated that, well, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, and that is correct. There's no such word as, as Trinity. But what we're going to see, again, is that it is the Scriptures, because of the way they present all three together, force us to understand or to come to 
to, to grips with a trinity, God in three persons. So let me start reading some scriptures here. First of all, I'm going to read the two texts that it says here for a scripture text. First of all, from Matthew 3, 16, 17. This is Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there we have God the Son, we have God the Holy Spirit, we have God the Father. We have Jesus commissioning his disciples in Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is very actually significant. How and why would Jesus say go baptize anyone in uh, in his name, if he is nothing more than a man. How and why would he have said, go and baptize anyone in the name of the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is not a separate, distinct person of the Godhead? Other scriptures, Luke ten twenty one. In the same hour, Jesus, the Son, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. In the New Testament, most of the time when speaking that word Lord, it is referring to Jesus Christ. And there are varieties of, act, of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. And just as often, well, oftentimes in the New Testament, when it's using just the term God and not adding on to the Father, most of the time it is referring to God the Father. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. First Peter 1, 2. Peter opens up his letter saying to this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. A couple of more here. Keep, keep with me on here. Second Corinthians 13, 14. The final benediction given in that letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love of God. Meaning the love of God the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Being with you all. And then in Titus that was read earlier. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Okay. Speaking of, of God the Father there. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So there's God the Father who has brought us salvation through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, pouring out onto us of the riches that are in Jesus Christ our Savior. And you might ask yourself, or some may ask, after listening to all of these verses, well, why don't we just conclude that there are three gods? Isn't that what's being said here? Well, again, it is Jesus who gives the clear answer about this. There was a time when he's asked, what is the, the greatest commandment? And he responds, opening the words that are spoken at every synagogue service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jesus was a good Jew. And he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4 to speak of gods truly would have been blasphemy. And nowhere in Jesus' teachings, Nowhere else in the New Testament, certainly not in the Old Testament, is such a concept spoken of, there's one God. And so it's it's this train of thought that leads us really to the point of the sermon. Which again, it is scripture that compels us. It forces us to to move into this kind of mind-blowing concept of God. There are critics who will claim that the the Trinity is a, well, that's a concept that was introduced later on in the church, you know, and and Greek thinking got into the uh, the ways of the church fathers, and they used these Greek concepts to come up, make up this kind of view of God. Well, we're going to be looking next week at that. We're going to be looking at some of these Greek concepts, actually, that were used to help us. But as you will see, it is scripture that forced the theologians to wrestle with this concept in the first place. They weren't just kind of just sitting around and didn't have anything else to do. And let's just think about God. And what if we came up with this idea? It is scripture that presents the three persons of the Godhead. It is scripture that prevents us from moving into polytheism. That is, the belief in more than one God. And so, Scripture, that leads us finally for ourselves to to answer the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? A number of years ago, Ginger will remember this, and I got to spend three months in, in Naples, Florida, Oh, just just a wonderful way. If this church wants to send me away for three months, <clears throat> uh, it's a great place to go, except we went to a church, and uh, we we're listening to the church, and the church, just just wonderful service, just, just great service, all the, uh, the kind of stuff I like. And so and then the minister gets up, and he's, and he's preaching on that text that you... You're familiar with the, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus with his disciples, and and there's an associate minister, and the associate gets up there and is reading the text, 
and three times, at the very beginning, in the middle, and at the end, makes clear, this did not happen. That's, that's verbatim. Okay, so anyhow, the, <clears throat> the pastor gets up and um, he finally says, you know, I know my congregation, I know you, and I know that some of you, you know, you believe that Jesus was you know, nothing more than a good man. He was a good teacher, but nothing than, more than a mere man. Some of you, you, you call him Lord, you're not quite sure what all that means. And then, and then some of you actually believe. I mean, this is God the Son. I kind of go among, back and forth on him myself. He says, you know, but I, I think, you know, when I read this passage, the whole thing of Emmaus, I think what Luke is telling us is that it doesn't matter what we believe about Jesus as long as we love one another. And uh, not matter. It does not matter whether Jesus was nothing more than a mere man or the Son of God. I mean, that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? I mean, what do you think? Does it matter to you that the person who died on the cross was nothing more than a good man? Or that he was God the Son, come down from heaven to die for you? Do you feel better about a God that you can kind of just limit him to being like yourself? You know, he fits into your ability to, to comprehend, you know, I can, I can deal with this one concept of God. Or do you feel better about a God that his very being is mystery itself? defying all categories, all analogies that we might try to come up with. You see, this is what good doctrine does. It doesn't put God and his ways in a box. Doctrine takes us along the scriptures. It's following the scriptures there. And it's following the scripture up to its highest peak. It puts us up there to the heavens above and over the vast ocean where we cannot go, but we can be left in awe. So that's what it is with the Trinity. We follow this, this trail of Scripture. We go through all of these passages. And it takes us along a path we never would have taken without it. Until with, with doctrine holding our hand, we, we climb up to the peak, looking up, looking out to the wondrous triune God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to three in one. Is this not a God that takes away your breath? Is this not a God that is truly worthy to worship? Is this not a God to fail at all before when we gather at his table? That's right. We give you praise, our Great God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we give you praise for this, this mystery, that you are filled with such mystery and awe. That, and we now understand what you have said in your scriptures. That you are not like us. You're not just a bigger version than we are. 
You're the God who is transcendent beyond all the means that we can be. Just begin to understand. Oh, we worship you and we adore you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.